chapter 9 to 10, verse 19. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithfulness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled her, pulled her from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon the knees, fell upon my knees and, sep- and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the king of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance for your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved, and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehel, 
of the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. And now, even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take, on, take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehoanan, the son of Elishib, where he spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithfulness of the exiles, sorry, the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days, by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself banned from the congregation of exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain, and we cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times, and with them the elders and judges of every city, until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Ashael, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed us, and Meshulam and Shabbatha, the Levite, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of fathers' houses, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the tenth of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women, Masaiah, Eliezer, Jareb, and Gedaliah, some of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brothers. They pledged themselves to put away their wives and their guilt offering was a ram of the flock for their guilt. This is the word of the Lord. All right. That was a biggie. 
That was a biggie. Good job, Grace. I promise you it'll look good, okay? It's going to work out all right. Um, if you remember, um, <clears throat> Ezra and Nehemiah, um, they're broken up into three main stories, right? They cover these three waves of returning exiles uh, back to the promised land to rebuild their city, uh, the temple, their community, and ultimately their relationship with God. Um, this morning, we are finishing the second of those three stories, uh, which is the story of, of Ezra leading uh, a group of, of exiles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the community of God. And, and he does that by reestablishing the Torah, by, by teaching the Word of God. And you may have picked up from that reading uh, that it's a bit of a tricky one. Um, you, uh, like me, may have some questions, and that's good and okay. The more you read your Bible, uh, the more you'll just have to be okay with having questions and not get, being able to grasp everything, but coming kind of humbly um, to the text to, to see what God has for us. Um, I tried to prepare you for some anticlimactic endings, and this is one of them, okay? Um, so um, if you can't remember, in week one, um, here's a reminder. Uh, the text is about Jesus, Okay. It's a little bit of a spoiler alert for you. Um, at the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, everything written in the Old Testament is fulfilled in me. Um, so even this strange, um, anticlimactic, sad, um, a little confusing text in Ezra, uh, we're meant to look for Jesus. Um, that's who it's pointing us to. It's preparing us for him, and that's our goal um, even today. So let me pray and ask that... Um, that would happen. Um, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us fully in your son, Jesus. And we thank you for your word that, that uh, teaches us who you are, who we are, um, and how we are to be yours. Um, Holy Spirit, would you show us Jesus today? Um, I pray that we would leave this room today uh, more in love with Jesus, more uh, just enthralled uh, with who he is, and what he's done for us, and that it would give us great joy. Um, pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I believe the text is doing <clears throat> a couple things for us. Um, I've, I've found it helpful to think of it as having like a primary lesson and a secondary lesson, like a primary reason and a secondary uh, purpose. Um, I'll start with the secondary purpose, and I don't want you to think of the secondary purpose as like less important, because it's incredibly important. Um, in fact, this purpose, the secondary lesson, is probably what most sermons cover exclusively, um, and it's good. It's meant to be showing us something about us, something about who, who we are meant to be, how we are meant to live uh, as, as the people of God. Uh, we are called to be the people of God, therefore we are called to be holy. We are called to live according to his ways. Um, so there's some valuable lessons concerning just that for us uh, in this passage, but there's also a primary uh, purpose of the text that we would be foolish to miss out on. And, and that purpose actually makes it possible for us to fulfill the, the secondary purpose, okay? Um, so the, we, we've already stated what the primary purpose is. It's, the text is showing us Jesus. It's, it's pointing us to Jesus. It's revealing us Jesus. That's, that's the supreme goal is to see Jesus, is to understand who he is. And when we do that... The secondary purpose will, will, will make sense, and we'll actually be able to, be, uh, to fulfill uh, what the text is telling us to do in that way. So are you following me? Does that make sense? Have I lost anyone yet? Maybe a little bit? 
That's okay. Uh, well, hopefully it'll make sense as we go. So, Ezra chapter 9. And over the last two weeks, we've covered chapter 7, chapter 8. I, I think we've gotten a pretty good understanding of who this man is, Ezra. Um, he's a man who has the good hand of God upon him. Um, he has set his heart to knowing God and his word, studying God's word and, and doing God's word and teaching God's word. Um, last week, uh, we saw in chapter 8, his journey from Babylonia to Jerusalem, and he comes up against some, some hurdles, and his, his initial primary reaction to dealing with problems is prayer. And he, he seeks the Lord because he, he, he fasts and he prays because he knows that the hand of the Lord is on those who seek him. Um, I, I think you can say about Ezra what was said about David. He's, he's a man after God's own heart. Um, and, and so he's, he's been chosen by God to do this. Um, at the end of chapter 7, it says God put this in King Artaxerxes' heart to do. Um, so he's stirring in, in Artaxerxes' heart just like he stirred in Cyrus's heart. So this is soft, God sovereignly working uh, throughout this story. Um, Ezra's made his journey from, from Babylon to Jerusalem and a problem arises, okay? And that's, that's the, the pattern that you see in all three of these stories, right? God stirs in the heart of a pagan king. That, that king makes this decree to, to, to make this return happen. God's people make the journey from exile to Jerusalem. A problem arises in each, in each story, and then an anticlimactic ending. And this, the, the story of the first return, opposition, the problem came from outside the community. So there's opposition to them rebuilding the temple. Do you remember that? And this, the, in, in the second return here, the opposition arises from within the community. And what's the problem this time? Well, we get it straight away in chapter 9. Verse 1 says, after these things had been done, after they'd traveled to Jerusalem, uh, the officials approached me. This is Ezra speaking. Um, the, these leaders approached him and, and, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Um, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites. Chapter, uh, verse 2, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And this, in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. So the, so the, 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 the problem is the people of Israel, and noted in particular, some of the Levites and the priests, these were the guys who were meant to be uh, teaching God's law and, and leading the people uh, to the Lord. And some of these people have, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. So these are, are pagan people living in the lands. Uh, they are not living according to God's ways. They, 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 they are not part of God's chosen people. Um, they, they don't worship Yahweh as the one true God. And, and they have taken some of these women from these pagan groups to be their wives. So they've intermarried and they've mixed themselves with the people of the land. So to understand why this is such a big issue, you have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 when God calls Abram for the very first time, and it's on the screen there. And he says to Abram, he says, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so he, cho he chooses Abraham, 
and his descendants for the purpose of making them a great family, this great nation that's inhabiting this, this land, so that they will be what? A blessing. And you will be, in you, all the families of earth will be blessed. So that's why God chooses them. And you keep reading and you see that their purpose is to represent God on earth. They are to reveal to the rest of the nations who God is. And they're on a mission, right? At the heart of God choosing them and setting them apart is this call to be missional. This call to reveal God on earth and to bless the nations. And the way they are called to fulfill that mission and to represent God is by being holy. They are called to be set apart by living according to God's ways and not according to the ways of the world. In Exodus 19, God tells them, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So consider the importance of that phrase, a kingdom of priests. Uh, the role of the priest in the, in the Old Testament was to, was to mediate, was to be a mediator between two parties and to reconcile two parties. And, and the two parties is, is God and the nations of the earth, right? So, so Israel's role is to reconcile all the nations to God. He, he, he chooses this one nation out of many so that the many will be blessed. And, and how they will do this is by being set apart. But by being a holy nation, Israel is meant, to be, is meant to faithfully represent God by how they live as this community of love and justice and worship Yahweh alone. You following me? Um, there's this principle that everyone in this room will know. Um, it's easier to pull someone down than it is to lift someone up, Right? Like all the teachers in the room will be like, yes, I, I understand that. Any parents will know that. Everyone knows that. It's easier to pull someone down than it is to bring someone up. And God, being aware of that principle, gives his chosen people on this difficult mission some, some restrictions in order to help them remain holy and faithful to him. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, Moses tells them this when they, uh, when they enter the land. This is the first time they enter the promised land. That they're, they're not to intermarry with the peoples of the nations. And, and the reason he gives is Deuteronomy 7 verse 4. That they will, they will turn away your sons or, or your children from following me to serve other gods. That they will bring you down. You will not bring them up. And he immediately says after that command, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. So there's these holy consequences for not uh, uh, obeying him. So they are to remain holy and set apart in order that they may fulfill their mission of revealing God and blessing the nations, right? Um, so that's so important to understand. that This remaining separate has nothing to do with being better than the other nations, Right? And look how filthy they are. We will remain clean over here. Um, it has nothing to do with ethnic discrimination. This isn't, he's not talking about racism. Verse 2 says the, this holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. But the Bible never teaches that this holy chosen race or people is ever about ethnicity. Remember back in, in, in Ezra chapter 6, just a few pages ago in verse 21, this is demonstrated. Remember, they celebrate the Passover. 
And it says it was eaten by the people of Israel and also by everyone who joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanliness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. So, so you, you see all through Israel's history, there is this, this distinction, right? There's, there's a separation. There's a, there's a, there's a holiness there. There's, a, there's a, a line of who's in and who's out, but it's a very porous border, You see all through Israel's history, these outsiders coming in, outsiders being included and being welcomed in when they repent and turn from their ways and worship Yahweh as the one true God. Rahab was one of these, Ruth. In fact, many important Israelites were married to non-Israelites. Moses himself was married to a non-Israelite, Zipporah. So so it's not about racial purity, it's always been about religious purity, spiritual purity, and faithfulness to God. Are you following me? Um, That word race literally means seed or offspring, but it isn't a particular ethnicity. It's always been about the people being chosen by God to obey Him, to be set apart, and to be holy for a purpose, right? And the purpose has nothing to do with remaining distant and above and better than others. The purpose is to bless them and to bring them to God. And in order to bless God, to, in order for God to bless the nations and to reconcile sinners to Himself, He needs some representatives on earth. He, he needs a kingdom of priests. He needs some ambassadors who will shine in the darkness. Right. Therefore, they must be holy and set apart. They've been invited into this this covenant with God. In this covenant, when they remain in the covenant. They will be a holy nation. The Lord has chosen them to be his treasured possession. Not because they were great. Not because they've done anything spectacular. The complete opposite. Because they were small. He has set his love on them and chosen them for this purpose. And God will be faithful to the covenant. And they are called to be faithful to the covenant. And the way they're faithful to the covenant is by keeping his commandments. You know the story, right? Um, from Sinai onwards, constantly unfaithful to the covenant, constantly walking away from him, constantly going after other gods. They didn't keep his commandments. They, they did intermarry, and what, ha- what, what God said would happen, happened. They, they were drawn away to other gods. And what happened? Well, God did what he said he was going to do, and he, they were destroyed, nearly. Uh, Babylon comes, he takes them into captive, and they lived in exile for 70 years. Won't go over all that again, but here we are, and God, despite their faithfulness, is choosing to remain faithful to their promise, to his promise. He, he's giving them another chance, he's bringing them back to the land to rebuild, but here we are in chapter 9, and Ezra arrives back in Jerusalem, and what does he find? He finds the people making the same mistakes again. What's his response? Verse 3 says, As soon as he heard this, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak. I pulled my hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. That's quite a response, isn't it? He's he's absolutely shattered by this. Think of the excitement that Ezra must have experienced, right? Right? 
most likely praying for years for this return to happen. God answers those prayers. He puts this in the heart of Artaxerxes to arrange this return. Ezra finally gets to see his dreams come true, returning from exile, the people becoming a holy nation once again, and then this is the unfaithfulness that he turns up to see. And he tears his cloak. It's this response of, of grief and loss. He pulls his hair out. This is common to, to shave your head in these times of grief. He doesn't even have time to find a, a razor. He just starts pulling his hair out. This, this deep sense of despair because of this sin and faithlessness. It says twice he sits appalled. He, he's stunned. He's stupefied. It's like he can't even bring himself to pray yet. Um, he, he, he's too appalled. Have you ever been that shocked? Have you ever been that, that, that shocked that you, you can't even pray yet? You, I need a moment to find my thoughts to, to regain my sense of reality here. When was, this, when was the last time you had that kind of response to the sin in your life? When was the last time you grieved your unfaithfulness to the Lord in this way? We celebrate the grace of Jesus, right? Like every week we pray, we preach his grace. And because of his sacrifice on the cross, we place, when we place our faith in him, we stand guilt-free. Uh, Romans 8.1, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? Amen? But does that mean we're not to grieve the sin in our lives? Of course not. Do we rest in his grace? Absolutely. Does he take away your condemnation and your guilt? 100%. But do we mourn our sin? We should. And if you don't believe so, read the Beatitudes again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who, who mourn. That includes a spiritual mourning. Blessed are those who, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're hungry and they're thirsty for that because they, they, they experience the lack of it in their lives. Following Jesus means accepting his free gift of grace and forgiveness, but it also involves continually examining yourself, a mourning of your sin, a desire to die to that flesh and move towards righteousness. This is the way of his kingdom. Ezra mourns rightfully over the faithlessness of the people of Israel. And may we be a church that doesn't shrug at our sins, uh, but mourns them. He sits appalled. He's in anguish. He's not eating all day. He says, I rose from my fasting that evening. This is a serious grieving of sin. And there's, there's something powerful about this this deep level of spiritual mourning, isn't it? Like verse 4 says, all those who trembled uh, the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around Ezra as he sat there. And are we a people who tremble at the words of the Lord? And the reader's mind should go to Isaiah 66 at this point. It's on the screen. It says, thus says the Lord. This is God speaking he says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? 
All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to me, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And I want to be a church that is made up of people who are humble and contrite in spirit because they realize how big God is and who tremble at his word. What would a church that is made up of those kinds of people look like? What would it look like in our real, everyday, ordinary lives to tremble and to take God's word this seriously? Eventually, Ezra is able to pull himself together, and what does he do? He falls on his knees in prayer. Uh, This is always the, the result of grieving your sin. This is what it always leads to, prayer. And we saw in the, the previous chapter that Ezra is a man dedicated on God, to God's word, but he's also a man of prayer. Those two things go together. You can't really be one without the other. Um, and prayer is his first response to trials. And we see it again here. He, he prays right there and with the people trembling at the word of God around him. And this is a public prayer. And you see what kind of prayer it is. It's a a prayer of confession. Verse 5, let's just read it. It says, uh, he says, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. This is in front of everyone. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you. He's so so ashamed of their faithlessness that, that he can't even look to the Lord. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. They're, they're drowning in their sins. Do you ever feel that way? And our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of, so from verse seven, he kind of looks back and he gives a bit of a history uh, confession in his prayer. Verse seven says, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Guilt is our story. It's what we've known from our fathers till now. And our iniquities, our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of this land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. So that's, the, that's why they're in exile, because of their sins, because of their faithlessness. Verse 8, but now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant, just a few, And to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving from in our slavery. For we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us to give us protection. So that's that's what's happening in Ezra and Nehemiah. They've been brought back because of his steadfast love, even though they've, they've been unfaithful to do this. And then verse 10, and now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants and the prophets, saying, and then he, he, he quotes that Deuteronomy uh, 7 uh, scripture, the land that you're entering to take possession of it, this land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations. Uh, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither their daughters to, for your sons. Uh, verse 13, and after all that has come upon us, 
for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. He's been merciful. They, they didn't deserve to be given another chance. They, did, they deserved to be wiped out completely, but he, he punished them less than their iniquities deserved, and he's, he's brought them back. Verse 14, well, then shall we break your commandments again? And intermarry with peoples and practice these abominations. Will you not be angry with us until you consumed us? So that there's no remnant and no escape. No, no more chances. Oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just. For we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt. For none can stand before you because of this. And that's his prayer. He doesn't ask for anything. He doesn't even ask for forgiveness yet. This is purely confession. Lord, we are guilty before you. None of us can stand before you. This is a public communal prayer, simply confessing their sins before the Lord. What has Ezra done? He he hasn't married anyone. He, He isn't guilty of this. He's been devoted to the Lord, to his word, to prayer. It seems his ways are faithful and, and righteous in this area, at least. He's living this life of total dependence of God. He's, he's only arrived onto the scene, and he stumbles on what's happening. Yet, this is his prayer. And if you go through and you count the number of times he uses plural language, we, us, our, 37 times In this prayer, 37 times he says those kinds of words. This is Ezra, who is not guilty of this sin, identifying with these sinners. He's saying, I'm with them, and we are guilty. There's a couple layers to that, right? But the layer about us, what does it say about us as a community of God's people? In the New Testament, this this communal aspect of the church carries on, right? You are brothers and sisters now. You, you, are, you belong to one another. You are members of each other, of one body. You should weep when others weep. You rejoice when others rejoice. Your sin absolutely affects those around you. And you see that communal aspect of sin playing out in Ezra. Ezra isn't guilty of this sin, but he's associating with and identifying with the sinners as their leader. This is the one who's been given this task of, of, of rebuilding the community and pointing them back to the Lord. He is leading them and he is saying, we are guilty of this sin. That's the New, that's the New Testament's message of sin, isn't it? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall, short of the, uh, and fall short of the glory of God. That, that last verse of, 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 his, of his prayer, we've all sinned. There's no one righteous, no, not one. God is holy and just and we are not. We are guilty before you, all of us. Church, let's not shrug at our sin. At the times when we are unfaithful to God, it doesn't crush us, right? 
We go to the cross, we gather around the table weekly to remember his grace and his forgiveness, hallelujah, but we should still mourn our sin. It should drive us to prayer and confession. We should take being the chosen people of God really seriously, that those who have been set apart to be called holy, those who are his treasured possession, the apostle Peter says, all that is us. That, that's you now. You are the chosen one. You are the treasured possession. You are called to be holy. His ambassadors in the world called to be holy, to represent God on earth, and to be a blessing to the nations. That's you now. We should take that new identity seriously. We should tremble at his word and consider seriously how we should repent and how we should turn and walk according to his ways. Paul in Romans 6 says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. But by no means, he says. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Hey, you won't find anyone in the Bible that takes the gospel and grace more seriously than Paul. He revels in it. But he also takes dealing with his sin incredibly serious. And we should too. May we be a people of God who mourn our sins, who who tremble at God's word, who are driven to prayer, confessing our sins to the Lord together, and seriously consider what actions we need to take in our lives to be holy. And that's exactly what Ezra and the leaders try to do next. Um, So much we can say about chapter 10, and we won't have time to cover it every detail, but I'm going to try to help us see the main point. Um, Briefly, here's what happens. Uh, Ezra continues in his prayer, his confession, his weeping before the Lord. This great assembly of Israelites gather together around him to mourn. So there's there's something attractive about this, some kind of, something revivally about this, kind of this level of of spiritual uh, uh, depression, this spiritual mourning. Zechariah, who's another priest, he responds to those prayers of confession. He addresses Ezra, and he proposes a covenant, we're told, with God. So so the the goal is to restore covenant with God. And he proposes that they divorce these wives. (laughs) It's not the usual word for divorce, but it looks like that's what's happening. He says, hey, let's do this. He says, according to the counsel of my Lord, that's, that's Ezra. Um, so, so remember, Ezra's role is to, to reestablish the, the law, to teach the Torah. And um, so he, he may have already proposed this himself. We don't get all the details in the story. And he says, of those who tremble at the commandment of our Lord, let it be done according to the law. So they're, they're, they're trying to do things according to God's word. And he says to Ezra, arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Ezra then does it. They take this oath. He then withdraws from this gathering, uh, makes his way to, I think it was a private chamber, where he spends the rest of the night fasting and praying. Shows that it's not a a straightforward decision. he's, he's, He's seeking wisdom. Then eventually they bring the assembly back together. Ezra lays out this plan. The assembly willingly agree to do this. Uh, they say it's going to take some time. We, we've entangled ourselves in sin. It's going to take some time, but they make a plan to carry this out. Uh, verse 15, we see a few guys. 
Jonathan being one of them, uh, opposed the plan. Um, so again, not straightforward. Not, it's not like, hey, here's the obvious answer that we should be doing. But verse 16, Ezra selects some elders to, to carry out the decree. They, they examine the matter. One by one, they eventually make their way through all the folks who have intermarried. And then the chapter and the book of Ezra ends with this, we didn't read it, this list of those who are guilty. And then it ends. And here are a few things to note. Uh, there are parts of the Bible that are prescriptive, and there are parts of the Bible that are descriptive. Um, so the, the, the prescriptive parts, they prescribe by God, here's what I want you to do. Here's how you should live your lives. Do this. And there are plenty of parts in the Bible that are prescriptive in that way. And then there are plenty of parts of the Bible that are descriptive. They describe what happened. And, and, and uh, this is one of them. Here's what happened. Here's how this person did it. Um, he, here's what they did. Um, it's, it's not prescriptive. It's not telling us how we are to apply God's word. It's descriptive. And it's, this is one of them. It's telling us how Ezra, this leader who, let me see, I just think he's doing his best. He probably would be canceled today, but I think he's doing his best. Um, I, I think all the leaders through Ezra and Nehemiah, they're not perfect. Uh, but I think they're really trying to do their best in these difficult situations. Um, I believe Ezra was a man after God's heart. He had set his heart to know God, to study it, to do it, to teach it. He lived this life of prayer and devotion and dependence on the Lord. But what, one lesson of the text is, hey, godly leaders aren't God. They, they don't always apply the word perfectly. Ezra had to interpret the scripture and then apply it to his situation. Remember what his, his job was. Ezra was to be this new Moses. He, he was leading the, the people of Israel in a new exodus back into the covenant faithfulness with God. That's his job, and he knows it. And he's this man of God. He's, uh, chapter 7 said he's skilled in the word of God. He, he remembers what the law said, what Moses said as they were entering into the, the promised land in that first time. And here they are again, recreating their version of it. And he said, I think this is what we are to do. He makes an interpretation and he sets out a plan. So, so when we read the text in that descriptive way, we can look back on this one human man in history and learn from him and admire him and, and, and say, love the the, the devotion to God, your, your life of prayer and dependence, we can do that and at the very same time not put him on a pedestal and worship him as our example, right? We only do that with one person in the Bible and that's Jesus Christ, which we'll get to. So it's okay to read the text and say, I wonder would we have done things differently? I wonder what I would have done. Be because the story ends anticlimactically, it does end in the sad, unsatisfying way. Even though they're trying to correct their ways and walk according to God's ways. Both of those things are true at the same time. Right? Their desire is for faithfulness to God. Their desire is for holiness. That's true. We should admire that. But their decision led to a pretty sad outcome. Both of those things are true in the text. And we're blessed to read it in light of the New Testament and the rest of the Old Testament. You'll not find anywhere in the Old Testament that says, hey, these folks should now divorce. That's not prescribed by God. 
Rather, this is Ezra trying to wisely interpret and to apply the word. But we read this. I'm glad I don't have to wonder, what would I have done in the situation? I don't have to do that because we live in light of the New Testament. And let me say a couple things for you because I don't want you to, to leave confused. And I know some of you in the room uh, are divorced. Some of you are married to unbelievers. So here's what the New Testament says prescriptively about this. The Apostle Paul speaks directly to a situation basically exactly like this in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, if a believer is married to an unbeliever, they're not to divorce them. Rather, they should remain with them, remain married, and live in such a way that you win the unbelieving partner to the faith. And you remember that you have to know the context that they're writing in. He's, he's writing to this context that the church is exploding, right? Like, People are coming to faith. People are becoming to Christians. Some of these people are married already. And, and so some of them are becoming followers of Jesus. And now they have a spouse that, that isn't a follower of Jesus yet. So Paul says, in that situation, don't divorce them. Remain and win them to Jesus through the way that you live. That's true at the very same time as what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.14 where he says something in a slightly different context, and he says, hey, don't be unequally, unequally yoked with unbelievers. So that sounds like he's a little bit more like Moses in Deuteronomy 7, right? Not to intermarry. And that's because he's speaking primarily to Christians, I think, who are seeking a spouse. Uh, in, in that situation, he says, if you're looking to get married, make sure you marry a believer. When you're looking for a spouse... That should be number one on your list if you're a Christian. Not, not if you're emotionally... Uh, I don't know. Not if you find them attractive, but are they a follower of Jesus? Your loyalty to Jesus will be the main thing that you share. So he says, make sure you can partner with them in that. Do you see how both of those teachings on marriage are true? It's easy to read the Bible, just kind of black and white, and oh, this, know the context, apply the wisdom. Back to Ezra 10, what do we do with the text then? What's the application? What is the, the text trying to reveal to us? Like I said at the start, there's a secondary purpose, just showing us something about us. Here's, here's what we are meant to be, but, but mainly it's showing us Jesus. It's showing us Him. And it's so blatantly pointing us to Jesus. These people are in a desperate situation. They're in a bad situation. They are guilty before the Lord. They are mourning their hopeless situation. Which is basically the story of Israel repeated over and over and over again, right? They, they, they are never good enough. <laughs> they, they can never seem to remain faithful. So what are they in need of? They are in need of someone who can lead them to righteousness. They, they need someone to say, here's how to be faithful. Here's the way to righteousness. And in their situation, they have Ezra to do this. They're, they're looking to Ezra for the answers, right? They're going to Ezra. They're gathering around Ezra saying, tell us what to do. But as good of an example and a teacher as he was, he wasn't the one that they needed. They needed a better priest. They needed a better mediator. They needed a better savior. Do you see how the text, as difficult as it is, 
as anticlimactic as it is, do you see how it's pointing us to Jesus? Like, we're, you are meant to feel this ain't it. Like, this, surely this isn't the way the story's meant to end. Surely there should be a better outcome than this. You are absolutely right to feel that. Because these sinners, they needed a better Ezra. And all through the text, we're meant to pick up on this bread trail that is leading us to Jesus. These chapters contrasted with the gospel of Jesus, they show us that Jesus is the true and better Ezra. It's pointing us to Jesus. It's preparing us for Jesus. It's making our hearts yearn for Jesus. And here's a few ways it does that. In chapter 9, Ezra weeps over the sins of the people. He weeps over their faithlessness. In Luke 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He is weeping over the hardness of their hearts. In chapter 9, Ezra associates with the sinners. Even though he's not guilty of this particular sin, he identifies with them. Jesus, who is completely sinless, associates with sinners. He he befriends them. He eats with them. But ultimately, he associates with sinners by bearing their sins on the cross. Ezra calls for confession and repentance of sins. And to make amends for those sins, he dishes out guilt. He He dishes out justice to the guilty. Jesus calls for confession and repentance of sins, but he receives the justice of the guilty by dying on a cross, becoming the way for the people to repent and to be cleansed of their sins. Ezra's book ends with him declaring who is guilty. Jesus, through his work on the cross, declares those who are righteous in him. Ezra's judgment ends with the tragic separation of Jesus' judgment leads to our glorious inclusion in God's heavenly family, a family that we can never be separated from. Do you see how the text is showing us Jesus is the true and better Ezra? Jesus is what these people need, that he's the priest who can actually reconcile our relationship with God. It's only possible to be and to remain faithful and holy people of God when we have Jesus as our Savior. I said at the start, that this text shows us two things. It does show us something about us. We, like them, we should mourn our sins. We should grieve our unfaithfulness to God. We should tremble at God's word. We should be driven to prayer and confession. We should seriously examine our lives and our community and consider what we need to repent of and turn from. But do you see how the text is showing us that we desperately need Jesus? If, if we are like these people, sinning over and over and over, who are mourning their sins over and over and over, are trying and trying and trying to remain holy, That is a battle that will never end. It's a cycle that will crush you. We need Jesus. We need need the cross where Jesus pays for our sins once and for all and reconciles us to God. You, You need his grace and his mercy. He's the answer. The the answer to how are we to remain holy and faithful to God? Jesus tells us that in John 15. Remain with me. That's it. Remain with me. You want to remain holy? Remain with me. 
Be with me. Come to me. Put your trust in me. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Yes, church, examine your lives. Yes, grieve your sins. Yes, tremble at God's word. Yes, pray and confess your sins. But Jesus says, be with me. Do you want to actually be able to walk in my ways? Be with me. Do you want to keep my commandments? Abide with me. Jesus is saying, here is where you bring your guilt. Here is where you bring your feelings of condemnation. He says, come to me when you're weary, when you're heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. I will turn your mourning into joy. You see, the story turns out differently when we have Jesus, doesn't it? Um, I'll leave you with this. Um, Leave here today hearing both lessons. If you only hear one, you're going to walk out confused. Yes, grieve your unfaithfulness. Um, Yes, go to him in prayer. Yes, tremble at his word. But go to Jesus. Eyes on Jesus, church. If you leave here today feeling crushed by the weight of your sins, I've completely failed you. The, The people of Ezra, they mourn their unfaithfulness and their story ends with disappointment and anticlimax. But for those who are in Jesus, our mourning leads to joyful worship, doesn't it? I think Paul's the greatest example of this, and you get a sense of him doing both of those things when you read Romans like 6 to 9. He is grieving his sins, isn't he, in those chapters? His flesh still clings closely. You see this war that's kind of raging inside of him as he grieves his sin, but what does he do? He remembers the gospel. He, he preaches the gospel to himself. He rejoices in the good news of Jesus, paying the penalty of his sins on the cross and setting him free from the law of sin and death. Is he perfect? No. Does he still sin? A lot. <laughs> does he grieve and hate his unfaithfulness? Yes. But does that crush him? It doesn't. It leads him to joyful worship. He sees this as an opportunity to revel in the grace and the mercy of Jesus, to rejoice in his new status in Christ, and to marvel at God's love for him. Do you see how Jesus turns it all upside down? That we do more in our unfaithfulness. We do more in our sin. We do kind of, oh, we hate when we're unfaithful to him, but it doesn't lead us to condemnation. It actually leads us to joyful worship because of the cross. So when we leave here today, remember that. May it be so for us. Would you stand with me and we'll pray. And Lord, we, we pray that song that we sing, our sins, there are many. 
but your mercy is more. And thank you, Jesus, um, for paying the penalty of our sins once and for all. And thank you for, for taking away our guilt and our condemnation. In you, we stand, uncle- we stand clean. We stand fully righteous. The Father sees you when he looks at us. How incredible is that? What, what a privilege it is um, to, to si- simply put our faith in you. We do nothing. It's just put our faith in you. Thank you, Lord, for associating with us. You come for us. You seek us when we're lost. You enter into our dirtiness and our mire to bring us close. And we thank you for the cross, Lord. We thank you that in you, um, we, can, we can move forward, stumbling forward, um, dealing with our sin by coming to you. May we be a church, Lord, that, that stays with you, um, that remains with you, that deals with our sins, but we do that with joyful worship because of what you've done for us. And what freedom we have in you, Jesus. We thank you. In your name we pray, amen.